Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. So much in life is entirely out of our control. And at the same time, we can always assert some control. I think both sides of that are true simultaneously. In the recent hearing that new Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson participated in, at one point she was telling a story about her life as a student when she walked onto Harvard's campus her first year as a freshman. And her voice was breaking as she remembered the story. She was walking through that venerable academic center, wondering if she would be accepted and to what extent, and to what extent she would find an academic and social and safe home there. And the way she describes it, although she wasn't aware of it at the time, worry must have shown on her face. Because as she was walking through Harvard Yard, walking past her in the opposite direction, a black woman whom she did not know passed her by. And as she was walking, she said, persevere. And Justice Brown has. Whatever one thinks of her judicial philosophy, this is a woman who has persevered. And to persevere is an amorphous and vague concept. What does it really mean? But there's a very real aspect to perseverance. Whatever happens and whatever one confronts, one can and one must stand in its presence and persevere. You almost have no other choice. And maybe that's the most important aspect of living with faith of any kind. One aspect of faith is this notion that there is something bigger than us. There's something greater than us. We do not understand the universe in its entirety. Some of that comes through science and some of that comes through religious faith. Mel Brooks used to joke about that in the 2,000-year-old uh, man where he says that the beginning of faith was then they thought that this guy named Phil around them was very big and powerful. And some, at some point, Phil was zapped by a bolt of lightning and they said... There's something bigger than Phil. That's part of faith. But the other part of faith is that we have some incredible control over every situation that we meet. When we see disorder, we can bring order. And we can be the instruments of the divine in that way. And Judaism is filled with such examples. Perhaps the most well-known and beloved one is how Judaism responds to the chaos and the sadness and the misery of loss. Those who've experienced it personally or who've helped others go through it, so much has been written about the brilliance of the structure that Shiva, the week of mourning, imposes upon the utter lack of emotional structure that a death in the family introduces. What is brilliant about Shiva is what it forces you to do step by step so that looking into an unknown future, 
becomes looking into something, a set of obligations, a set of requirements that gives you a Hansel and Gretel pathway to bring back order, if not necessarily instant joy into your life. And I think we can read some aspect of Parshat Mitzorah, the fascinating and complex Parsha from which Eloise drove such beautiful meaning before in that context. I want to share an insight into the Parsha in its entirety, not a particular verse, that was shared by a congregant of a friend of mine, a woman by the name of Beth Levine, who lives in New York. By the way, she's a scholar in her own right. She's not a rabbi. She just completed the 929 project, which is to study a chapter of Tanakh of the Bible each day. There are 929 chapters of Tanakh of the Bible, and she just completed that cycle. So she's now studied the entire Bible in its entirety. And when you study it in its entirety, certain themes and associations and juxtapositions become clear. And she thought, why are these set of laws of Tazria and Metzora taught in this exact spot in the book of Leviticus? Revelation happened many chapters ago in the book of Exodus. And even after Revelation at Sinai, Parshat Mishpatim laid out 30, 40, 50, 60 different laws. Why right here in this part of the Torah do we have all of a sudden the laws about what, would, what happens when one is diagnosed with this disease, Tzarat, and it spreads to your body, and it spreads to your clothes, and it spreads to your house. Why this now? She believes, or she offers as a possibility, that what's the narrative thing that happened immediately before this Parsha? What's the last thing that happened to the Israelites? The last major thing that happened to the Israelites is that they witnessed Nadav and Avihu, two priests, the sons of Aaron, who were serving in the Mishkan, and in the right before it was going to be inaugurated. And they brought an Eish Zara, some kind of a strange fire in front of the Lord. This was in Parshat Shmini two weeks ago. And God took them. God killed them. They were there and then they were not there. And Aaron watched their father and he was silent. And the people watched and the people watched Aaron. Can you imagine a people that's trying to get used to and be in relationship with the God who brought them out of Egypt and is inviting them to be in relationship and one of the first moments where the spotlight is on, where the sanctuary is going to be dedicated, there's essentially a murder from heaven right in front of them. A chaos and a fear and a sadness and a lack of order that must have been terrifying. According to Beth Levine, here comes Parshat Tazria. Here comes Parshat Mitzorah. You are befuddled by what you are witnessing. You can no longer make sense of the world. One plus one no longer equals two. Our response to that is the most structured, detailed prescription for how to bring healing to a community, to a house, even to your very garments. You look this way and you see loss and degradation and destruction. You look that way, you see healing and process and order and a pathway back to normalcy and well-being. I would like to offer, and I'm very moved by that reading, that we can even reread the Seder that we're about to have in less than a week from now in the same way. Seder means order. Right? That's what the word means. And usually we think of Seder night as a response to liberation. It's a festival of freedom. Some of the Haggadot even called that a festival of freedom. It's a response to liberation. It's a response to redemption. 
Maybe another way of understanding why the Seder is constructed as it is and why the rabbis imposed it upon us is that it's not a response to Yitziat Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, but it's actually a response to Shi'abud Mitzrayim, the very enslavement of Egypt. We do the Seder, the order, to respond to the Seder, to the lack of order, the free-floating free floating anxiety that our people and so many who are unmoored and are oppressed have experienced. It's as if we say, tonight we go in order. Tonight we assume control. Tonight our response to tyranny, attempting to impose chaos onto life, is to impose order onto chaos. Tonight, centuries after slavery, we persevere and we live a life of freedom. The Seder doesn't just reflect the ordered life of the Israelites post-liberation. In this read, the Seder is a triumph over the disorder to which they had been subjected. And I'm not sure how many of you include this in the Seder, how many of you are still awake on this page, but we end the Seder with a fascinating manifesto. In our family, we actually sing it to Hatikva. Chasal Sidur Pesach Kehilchato. Chasal Sidur Pesach Kehilchato. We have concluded the order of Pesach, Kehilchato, exactly as it was prescribed. Kehol Mishpato. Every rule, the Chukato, and every law. Kasher Zachinu Lissaderoto, just as we have merited, thank goodness, be able to do it in order. Kenis Kelasoto, so may this order continue and be brought forward into the future. We end the Seder, it's a way of saying to ourselves and to anyone listening that there's always something to be done. There's always response to calamity and to suffering and defeat. Perseverance itself is an achievement. Eating a meal in order as free people is a poke in the eye of any person who would deny that freedom to us. It's a powerful story in the Family Participation Haggadah that was edited by Noam Tzion and David Dishon. One Sunday morning in 1941, in Nazi-occupied Netherlands, just as the beginning of the horror was presenting itself, a mysterious character rode up on his bicycle and entered the local Calvinist church. He ascended the podium and he read aloud the story of the midwives who saved the Hebrew babies and defied Pharaoh's policy of genocide. And then he turned to the congregation and he said, who is today's Pharaoh? Hitler, the congregation replied. Who are today's Hebrew babies? He shouted. The Jews, they yelled. And then quietly he asked, who will be today's midwives? During the next few years, seven families from that tiny church in the Netherlands hid Jews and other resistors from the Nazis and generations were able to emerge from them. I was going to end with that story because it's inspiring, inspiring hopefully all of us to find the ways in which we can be a midwife, as it were, imposing order upon chaos. But I also believe that every point deserves a counterpoint, and even the counterpoint has a counter-counterpoint. The only problem with this read of the Seder and of reality is that, as you all know inside your head if you've been listening and thinking about it, is that it's rarely that easy or simple. And sometimes the lack of control that we witness is just too much. It's just overwhelming. 
and sometimes the Seder's own testimony about there being a sacred order to the world defies reality. Think for a second about Chad Gadya at the end of the Seder. If a dog bites a cat, we're taught, the stick hits the dog, and the Holy One will always triumph even over death. It's a pithy little ditty, and it's brought into deeper theological realm in other languages. The German version of Chad Gadya, and most people believe the Chad Gadya began as a kind of a German rhyming song disconnected from the Seder. I'm going to mess up this pronunciation because I don't read German. But the German ends with a refrain after each cycle, Gott richtet Welt und Wessen die Guten wie die Bossen, which is basically saying that God is right in the world, order will reign, God is in charge. That is a, re a, re a recurring refrain throughout the German version of that song at the end of the Haggadah. And we all know that that theology and sense of reality is just hard to maintain when you look at the world with open eyes. The story of Chad Gadya does not always come true. Look around us. We mentioned it before. The horror, horrific killings of innocents in Ukraine and the terror in Israel about which we prayed and the disorder within our own city and nation. We know all too well that when dogs bite cats, sometimes there is no stick that comes to beat the dog. My dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Barry Dove Katz, suggests that perhaps that is the more subtle message of the Haggadah. This is the truth of the Israelite experience. And it's the truth of life. We are constantly toggling back and forth between the disorder and the order, the control that we lack and the control that we wield, the chaos that engulfs us over here and the power that we have to push it away. And then he says, think of the Seder. There's a consistent theme, if you look carefully, running through it all. As you face these hills and valleys, as you confront your own power alongside your own impotence, perhaps the most important thing that Seder reinforces is the question of who is around your table to do it with you. Seder is filled with it. The four children, all the different types of a child that a family or community can have, even the wicked one, is brought and kept at the table. Anyone who is hungry, we say, should come into our homes on Pesach night and eat at our table. Our table is open to the vulnerable. The rabbis in Bnei Brak, who spent all night studying the tradition, suggesting that a table should be a place of constancy, where the tradition is poured over again and again. And even the ancient ritual, which is now defunct, of how the Jews originally did Pesach. Originally, Pesach was not done as a Seder. It was done by eating a sacrifice, the Korban Pesach. And that ceremony involved a process called Minui, where every set of families had to assign the cohort, the Chabura, the other groups of families with whom they were going to celebrate that holiday and eat that meal. Every step of the way on Seder night, we're looking around the table and saying to ourselves, who is with us? And it's as if the text is saying to us, surround yourself with the right people, be generous, and open your doors. Study the tradition with vigor. It's a great way to begin bringing and to begin being the light that can push out the darkness. Six nights from now, we'll be sitting around our tables. Parshat Mitzorah will be a distant memory. 
but perhaps the lessons that we discussed can be with us. And I want to give you an exercise, a three-part exercise that you can do at any Seder you attend, whether you are leading it or not. Question one you should ask out loud. Whom would you have loved to have around your table who couldn't be here tonight? Who joins you in bringing chaos to disorder? Question two, who are today's midwives? And how close are you to emulating, emulating them on the level that you should? And finally, what, which seems utterly beyond your control, is actually at least somewhat in your control? And what are you going to do about it? You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.